two Friday nights ago, I found myself in the uh, in the seat with about ten thousand other people. Well, that's ministerially speaking, so there was probably five hundred of us. And um, as we were there, um, a pastor in Nashville at Long Hollow Baptist Church, um, Robert Gallaty, Robbie Gallaty, stood and and brought a sermon that he entitled Jesus's last words, our first works. And so I stole the title, not the sermon, but I did steal the title from him. And so this is the first time that I'm using it. So it's his next time I use it, it will be, I will reference him. And the third time it will be mine. So it's just how it is. But, um, today we are looking at Jesus's last words, and may they be our first works. To the Connect leaders, I know in a video that I sent you stated that I would be in Hebrews chapter 10. Forgive me, we will be in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, look down at verse 16, and we will look through the end of the chapter and also the end of the book in verse number 20. Here's what Matthew records for us in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Before we go any further, if you were to look in 1 Corinthians, you would see Paul put this account down as this, that this account, the end of Matthew's gospel, is where 500 saw him after he was raised from the dead. Paul puts this episode, puts this time, and this event with the 500, and therefore, if we read it in that light, that the 11 saw him and they worshiped, but some, some in the crowd, they doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus came and he said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, God, may we see the importance of these last words. Father, may we see, God, as as you have declared it, Father, as you have spoken it, Jesus, may these words dive deep into every one of our hearts and every one of our lives. Father, may it start with me. For you have commanded 
every son and every daughter of yours to be about this task, about this mission. May we do that. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. His name was Michael Faraday. He lived, he was born in 1791, died in 1867. Michael Faraday lived in England, and he was a great scientist. Great scientist. Tests that are run on you and run on me on a weekly basis, no matter what hospital or even doctor's offices have a great deal to do with his work. If you go find yourself placed in one of those claustrophobic tubes called an MRI machine, his work helped to get men and women in later years, decades, and even centuries to understand it. His work with the electromagnetic force, electrolysis, was unheard of in his day. On his deathbed, his wife asked him this question. So when you get to the afterlife, what's your job going to be? What a question on your deathbed. His words to her, oh, great words. I will be with Christ and that will be enough. Mm. Last words. To be honest with you, I thought about standing up here and beginning the sermon with the statement of, this is my last sermon at River Bend. And then I thought, uh, people might clap and cheer. So I was like, no, let's don't go there. But last words. If you had the opportunity, what would you want your last words to be? There are a number of us in the room that we might not say what we would like our last words to be, but we would possibly like to know when those last words will be. Jesus knew when his last words would be, and he also knew because he spoke them what his last words would be. This morning, I want us to look at these last words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The first point this morning from these last words, may they be our first work, is this. The believer has all power at one's disposal to employ. The believer, you and me, have All power. We have all power at our disposal to employ in this task, in this mission that you and I have been called to. Every ounce of authority of those in heaven and those things on earth has been given to Jesus. 
Think about this for a moment. Last week we saw in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the, the statement was, and you, you, you 11, that's what he was stating, and you as believers today, you and I, we will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will receive dunamis. That's the Greek word. It's where we get our word dynamite. We will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And lo, I'll be with you always. Similar statement that is found here. But it's a different word. It's not the word. It's, it's, in some translations, it is translated as power. But here in the ESV, it is translated as authority. All authority is been, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So let's unpack that for just a moment. All authority in heaven. Stay with me, okay? Keep your thinking cap on, but stay with me. This earth is passing away. This earth is broken. This earth is passing away. It is a physical world, and this world that you and I live in is passing away. The heavenly world is more real than this world. I know that you taste in this world. I know that you see in this world. I know that you hear in this world. I know that we feel in this world. All those senses. But this world is not as real as the spiritual world. When Jesus says, all authority in heaven has been given to me, he is speaking of a spiritual world that is more real than the chair that you're sitting in. Because one day that chair is going to be engulfed in flames and it is going to be no more. It is is more real what Jesus is stating with the statement of all authority in heaven has been given to me is more real than the Himalayan mountains, than the Pacific Ocean, than anything that you and I can touch, feel, taste, see, any of those things. It is a heavenly spiritual world that Jesus speaks of. And in that world that is more real than this physical earthly world, he has all authority. Can you give me an example, Brian, of this spiritual world? Yes, I can. And I understand that it is October and the verbiage and the vocabulary, the stories of all things that are spooky, all things that are unseen, goblins, demons, and what have you, is ever dark and ever expanding. But there is a spiritual world that you and I do not see. But that spiritual world happens to be more real than the world that you and I see. And that spiritual world is active at this very moment. Let me give you two passages and we will move forward. In Daniel chapter 9 and in Daniel chapter 10, there was a prayer that Daniel asked for. He pleaded 
in chapter 9. God, would you please, in this moment, would you please act? And nothing happens in the physical world. And in Daniel chapter 9, he pleads over and over again, verse after verse after verse, he is pleading for their action to take place. And there is no action all the way through the end of chapter 9. You get to chapter 10, and as chapter 10 unfolds, it speaks of things not yet seen. And then in verse number 12, there is someone that shows up and his name is Gabriel. And he stands in front of Daniel and he states, Daniel, the moment that you prayed, it was heard and I was sent. But for these past 21 days, I have been fighting the prince of Persia until Michael the archangel came and gave me help so that I could come and bring the news to you. There is a spiritual war that is taking place at this moment that you and I seldom, if ever, have the opportunity to see, but that does not mean it is not happening because it is happening right now. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17 down through verse 20, Elisha and his servant find themselves surrounded. I love this passage. They are surrounded by a king because this king is mad because when he is sitting inside his throne room, when he is sitting there with his top nobles, he is telling, hey, here what the plans are. Here's where we're going. Here's where the army is going to be. And the king in Israel knows it. And he is, a, this king in Syria, is a, he is about to just level some heads. He brings everybody in and he says, who is on his team? Tell me. Tell me, all my friends, who, who of you are on Israel's team? And they're like, uh, no one. But there is this man, Elisha, whatever you think, whatever you say, he knows it because God gives it to him. And he says, find him and kill him. So the whole army of Assyria, the whole army of Assyria comes and, and surrounds, in the middle of the night, surrounds this town. And Elisha's servant goes out early in the morning to do what servants and all people need to do early in the morning. And when he opens the door to go outside, he sees they are surrounded. And he comes running back, uh, Elisha, we're doomed. Verse 17 down through verse 20 of Second Kings chapter 6 says this. Brian Tillman version. Lord, let his eyes be opened to let him see who's with us. And God granted the prayer. And Elisha's servant was able to see what Elisha saw. And Elisha's servant saw with his eyes on the hills and in the clouds a myriad of myriad angels, the angelic host all around ready to pounce. And the servant says, Those that are for us are greater than those that are against us. The spiritual 
world is more real than the earthly, physical world. And all authority in Jesus has been given of those in heaven and those on the earth. Does that mean that I am belittling or that Matthew is belittling or even Jesus as he is speaking this is belittling this world? No. It means that he has all authority in the spiritual realm that you and I can't see, the spiritual world that is taking place that you and I can't see, and also in the physical that you and I can. It has been given to me. The believer has all power at one's disposal to employ. Kitty Suffield, back early in the 1900s, wrote a hymn that I like to sing, but I'm not going to this morning. But I will read it for us. In the harvest field now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest. He's calling you. Does the place you're called to labor seem too small and little known? It is great if God is in it and he'll not forget one of his own. When the conflict here is ended and our race on earth is run, he will say, if we are faithful, welcome home, my child. Well done. And listen to the chorus. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it. If you go, in Jesus' name. Adrian Rogers stated it this way. Our Lord states, all power is given unto me, and so they went. The book of Acts is a success story. It's, it's the success story of the church being triumphant. In the book of Acts, those early Christians, Rogers goes on, they had something that swords couldn't kill, water couldn't drown, fire couldn't burn, jails could not hold. There was no power that seemed to be able to stand against them because, because the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ was with them In 2018, in Hernando, Mississippi, every single one of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that we have bowed the knee, we have confessed with our mouths that He is our Savior, He is our Lord, every single one of us have all power given to us. We have all power in us because His Spirit lives in every single one of us. And you're like, Brian, I don't feel powerful. I'm with you. I'm with you. But the reason you and I don't feel powerful, it's not because we don't have all power in us. It's because you and I have the range. You and I have the throne of our hearts and our lives. And if you and I would die to sin in self and allow him to live, 
in that moment, sir, ma'am, in that moment, Brian, all power rules and reigns in us. The believer has all power at one's disposal to employ this mission that is before us. This week I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the prince of preachers of yesteryear across the pond in England. And he said these words. Brethren, that's men and women for us. The heathen are perishing. Shall we let them perish? His name is blasphemed. Shall we be quiet and still? The honor of Christ is cast into the dust. His foes revile his person and resist his throne. Shall we, his soldiers, shall we suffer this and not find our hands feeling for the hilt of our sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Our Lord delays his coming. Shall we begin to sleep? or to eat, or be drunken? Shall we not rather gird up the loins of our mind and cry unto him, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The scoffing skeptics of these last days have said that the anticipated conquest of the world for Christ is but a dream, or an ambitious thought which crossed their leader's mind but which never is to be accomplished. He answers himself with these words, Nay, rather let us work out this problem. Let us prove the promise of God to be true. Let us prove the words of Jesus to be the words of soberness. Let us show that His blood and this invincibility that is His Spirit is going in the spirit of faith, teaching all nations and winning them to the obedience of Christ our Lord. You have all power given to you to employ this mission that he has called you to do, that he has called us to be about. Why are we silent? The believer not only has all the power at one's disposal to employ for this mission, but second this morning, you and I see that evangelizing the nations is the first step of our task. Look back in these verses, in verse number 19, we read this, Go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. What's a disciple? A disciple is a follower. A disciple turns out to be like the one they are following. In yesteryear, before there were universities and there were different schools and different areas of expertise, a person who wanted to learn a practice, a trade, or whatever it was, they would come underneath one who had mastered it. And they would walk with them. They would see how they practiced. They would do the task 
day after day after day until it was their own so that they would know that art. They would know that job just like the one who was teaching them. Did it take long? Yes. Was it tedious? More than likely not, yes. But what were they doing? They were being a disciple of that person in that trade or in that job so that they could know and do the task. A disciple of Christ is what is being called for in this passage. A disciple of Christ is what you and I are called to go and make. And it begins with evangelism. There is no way for you to split evangelism and discipleship. It's, they, they try to do that so often these days. If you're all for evangelism, you're a million miles wide and two inches deep. If you're all for discipleship, you're half a foot wide and you're 20,000 miles deep. You cannot split the two. Evangelism is the beginning of discipleship. Discipleship flows out of evangelism. And in this, we see our first task. And that task is to evangelize the nations. The term there is all ethne. In our world today, there is some 17,000 ethne. 17,000 people groups. 17,000 people groups make up some 7.5 billion people who are breathing at this moment. Of the 17,000 ethne people groups, 10,000 of them would be called reached. So there are some 7,000 people groups that are not reached. They are unreached people groups. And you might say, well, Brian, what do you mean by reached? Get your math caps on. A people group is considered reached when 2%, one, two, 2% are professed Christians. 7,000 people groups that make up 2.5 billion of the world's population are unreached. Let's take it a step further just so you can grasp what's happening because it is an awesome thing that is happening. I know those are numbers that are big. They are large. Yes, they are. But there is something Awesome that is happening. Out of the 2.5 billion people that are unreached, meaning that 2% are less, less than 2% are professed Christian. Let me get my numbers right in my head. Don't do that. Let's go back to the page. 3,000 of these people groups are unengaged, meaning that there is no evangelical work that is happening. So 4,000 of the seven, somebody's working. There are missionaries there. There are churches there. There are people going out. But 3,000 of them have nobody going forward. And you're like, Brian, that's, that's not good news. Well, okay, 2.5 billion people, 
unreached. But of the 2.5 billion people that are unreached, there's only 200 million. Those 3,000 people groups make up 200 million people, not even the population of the U.S., that don't have anybody going to them. Now, do we sit back as... Spurgeon was stating that we shouldn't do No, we, we continue forward. But that work, evangelizing the nations, it's the first step of the task. What you and I need to be reminded of, River Bend, because I believe as one who stands on this platform week in and week out, we, I get complacent. We find ourselves complacent and we have forgotten that the gospel came to us as it was going to someone else. And the gospel continues now going. And you and I are called to take it. Take it across the street. Take it to friends and family that don't know Christ. Take it to the nations. Evangelizing the nations is the first step of our task. So go. The good news is only good news when you and I tell it. The good news of the gospel is only good news when you and I tell it. Paul states this in Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, I'm going to guess something. When you see that word preaching at the end of verse 14, you think of somebody like me standing on a stage like this proclaiming that. That is not all that that means. That word preaching and that word right before it, someone, is the person that you look at when you look in the mirror. That word preaching is what you do and what I do when you and I stand in front of somebody and start a conversation. Paul continues in verse 15 and he says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, who proclaim, who talk of the good news. The good news is only good when you and I tell it. Until then... The good news is an eternal death sentence for those who never hear. Like Brian, that's harsh. Pastor, what about those that stand on an island that never hear? What about those 3,000 ethne that have never heard, that are unengaged if they don't hear? It's not my words, it's his words. If they don't hear, they die and spend an eternity away from him in hell.
that's harsh. Jesus stated in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl comes unto the Father except through me. Be about the task. Be about the mission, River Bend. Be about the mission, the task, sir, ma'am, Brian. Be about the task, evangelizing the nations that begins in your home, in your community, in our city, around the world. It is the first task of our mission. Finally, this morning, we see that edifying the church is a huge part of our mission. You see that in verse number 20. After he states in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord willing, if this is not my last sermon to stand on this stage, meaning that I will be able to preach next Sunday, we will talk about the church. We'll we'll talk about River Bend, but we'll talk about the church and why you and I need to be a part of said church, his church. Edifying, lifting up, encouraging, teaching, building the church is a huge part of our mission. And Jesus said for you, and he said for me, go, make disciples, go, teach them to obey all that I've commanded, and I'll be with you. Always. If you were to look back in Matthew chapter 1, you were to see the word that they, Mary and Joseph, were supposed to name their son. That name would be Emmanuel. In the beginning of Matthew's gospel, there was Emmanuel, and that name is God with us. God is with us in the birth of this son. God is with us in the birth of this life, this Messiah who came and lived a sinless, perfect life. Died a death to pay for your sins and mine. And as he is about to go back into heaven, he says to his followers, Emmanuel. I was with you in the beginning, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. You have nothing to fear, sir. Ma'am, there is nothing for us to fear. Brian, it looks dark outside. He's with you. Brian, you don't understand my boss. He's with you. You don't understand my husband. He's with you. You don't understand my wife. He's with you. You don't understand this moment. He's with you. You don't understand the three. He's with you. Whatever step you and I take, he is with us. 
every step, every place, every spot. Be about the task. River Bend, the mission is in front of us. Be about the mission. Go this week. Tell somebody about him. Don't walk back in here next week. Let's, let's make this pact, okay? Let's make this pact. We have seven days. Seven days before we will join back in this place. Let's don't walk back in here and not tell anybody about him. Tell somebody this next seven days about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because that's our mission. Father, I know that last statement might be hard because, God, most in this room have probably never stated things concerning you to anyone. And it's foreign. But, Father, would you, this moment, for those of us who are yours, would you drive deep into our hearts and into our lives the statement that Paul had for Timothy that you, God, you didn't give us a spirit of fear. When you gave us your spirit, you gave us a spirit of power. When you gave us your spirit as Jesus prayed in the garden and asked that you would give us another helper just like him, That's what you did. You gave us your spirit who has all authority in heaven and on earth in us. Father, I pray this for myself before I even pray it for all in this room. God, may I walk knowing that. And you desire none to perish. You desire all to know you. God, they won't know you unless I speak. They won't know you unless we speak. They won't know you unless they hear. May we go this week and tell. That's our mission. Church, that's our mission. May we be about the mission. May this be an encouragement to us, knowing we know the mission. Not not to beat any of us down or up, but we know the mission. As we come to a time of response, maybe you need to stay exactly where you are at this moment and spend some time asking the Father, Father, who who is it that's in my circle? Who is it that's in my life that you want me to speak to this week? Who is it that I know that needs to hear the good news this week? Father, will you give us opportunities? And may we, just as your word states, may we observe, may we obey all that you have commanded us. Ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You join us as we come to this time of response.